0: All right, morning again. Uh, We are, as was just said, in the middle of a series on what does the Bible teach on gender and sexuality? And we are in week three today, which means we're going to be looking at the topic of identity. Uh, By the way, next week, uh, when we get into the practical questions, if you haven't had a chance yet, uh, you can submit your question uh, through the Connect tab of our app. And then what we're going to do is we're going to cover Basically, what are the most asked questions? I'd love to hear from you on that. Well, let me just define identity uh, right from the beginning here. So, identity is who you think you are and where you find your worth. Now, identity has always been a major part of human history. It's just that how people have found their identity over time has really changed. In fact, Philosopher Philip Reif, uh describes four eras of identity in the history of a Western civilization. And he describes it this way. The first one is what he called the political identity. So if you go back to the days of Plato and Aristotle in the Greco-Roman days, uh, many people found their worth, uh, their significance, through how they engaged with the public life of the city. You know, what was their political role? How did they... Serve the community. So you would say, I am a senator, or I am a Roman citizen, or some people even had to say, I am a slave. Your sense of self was defined by your relationship with the state. Well, eventually in the Middle Ages, political identity gave way to what was called the religious identity. So if you lived in Europe, say, in the year 1000 AD, uh, you likely would have determined your worth by how involved you were with the uh, local church, right? How much did you attend mass and celebrating the Catholic feast days and your engagement kind of with church life? And I would say also there was a really strong um, identity, maybe, maybe just below this, that we might call like a family trade. So you'd say, my family have been blacksmiths for 300 years, or millers, or cobblers, and that's who I am. It was part of your identity. But eventually, due to technology, uh, the industrial revolution, the rise of uh, individualism, a new identity emerges, and this one is called the economic identity. And so in this era, You don't have to be a blacksmith anymore if you don't want to. And so people began to find their identity and what they could break out and do, what they could personally accomplish. It was how their career went or how much money their family made, how big their house was. Um, These are the days when you met someone, the very first question you would always ask is, what do you do for a living? Why? Because that's who you are. That's your identity. It's where you found your worth. Now, there are certainly pieces of this era Still around. When we talk about eras that last for as long as this, right? They don't switch on a day. And so what's happening is we're kind of in the transition from the third to the fourth stage right now. But a fourth era is emerging, and this is called the psychological identity. So in this era, we are no longer as concerned with finding our identity, our identity, in having more success or power or money than other people. We now feel in the culture that our identity. Remember, that's our concept for who we are. How do I find my worth? We feel our identity should be found within. And the culture says if you're going to discover who you are, you actually need to look not out at what you've done. The culture says you need to look inward to your thoughts and your feelings and your desires because those are the things that come from the most authentic, irreducible form of you. And so therefore, that has to be the thing that describes you. And thus, the cultural reasoning goes, if you don't allow yourself then to actually live out who you are, work-wise, lifestyle-wise, if you don't pursue what your heart truly desires, maybe relationship-wise, the culture says then it's actually not going to be possible for you to be happy because you would be going against your core, against your identity, against who you are. This is the new era of psychological identity. And within this new era of people defining their identity by how they're how they feel, there's a strong movement to define our identity by an even more narrow scope, and that is, many people are saying we should define our identity by our sexual feelings and desires, or our gender identity, and we're told that this is indeed a crucial part of our happiness. Let me show you what I mean, and I'll just kind of maybe reference the pop culture a little bit. Okay, if you're like the average American, uh, you, you probably watch a lot of TV uh, or you stream a lot of shows. And I want you to just think about how almost every show uh, nowadays has some sort of script where there is a character who experiences a same-sex desires. And I want you to think a little deeper on this. Like, what is the script? Like, what is the moral underneath it? What, what are they trying to accomplish? Where the script usually says, and often it's a younger character or maybe it's historical fiction or something, the character eventually decides that these feelings they're having, these desires are their authentic self. It's their identity, it's who they really are. And then the plot of the series tells us that when that character is finally able to carry out those desires to fulfillment, that's when the character is truly happy. Because finally, they can be their truest self. They can live out their feelings. And we've all heard that story of really in a thousand different ways. Because sometimes it's about same-sex attraction. Sometimes it's about a gender identity. Lots of times it's just about a person who's in a marriage, and they leave their marriage to go be in love with someone else that they actually feel in love with. But what is it? The moral is the same in all of them. It's saying your feelings are you, and you are your feelings. And then under that, they're saying, and if you want to truly be the most happy in life, you've got to be true to your desires, specifically your romantic and sexual desires. And that's what we're told every day, over and over. Now, the origins of this idea go back a little over 100 years to a Sigmund Freud, Freud strongly felt that sexual feelings and sexual satisfaction were the key to happiness. In fact, Freud felt that humans should, and I quote, make genital eroticism the central point of their lives. Thank you, Sigmund Freud. Okay, listen, today, if somebody came to the U.S. from a very different place, let's say Malaysia or a Mozambique, it wouldn't take them very long at all to deduce that our culture is actually built around that very Freudian idea, that sexual satisfaction is the main thing that we seek out. Think about this, so much so that our inward and previously very private sexual desires have now become public identities, right? And, and this doesn't even feel weird to us because I know we're swimming in the midst of it. So you have to picture yourself coming and being a part of our culture from a very different culture, okay? Because in our culture right now, our sexual desires have become a flags that you could put out on your are They are bumper stickers that you would show other people. They're check boxes that you would check for a job interview. They're colors you would put on your profile pictures. Our, our, our private sex lives have become very, very public, and that's because sexual desires have become an identity. And I wanted to take a week in this series to talk more deeply about why people think this way, because as Christians, I think it's really important that you understand how people who are different than you, how they think, so that you can have more respectful, and that you can have more knowledgeable, and honestly, more effective conversations with people, and hopefully lead them to the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. But it's really hard to do that if you don't understand how people think. It's kind of like if you were going to be a missionary to a different culture, you wouldn't just go in and say, this is what Jesus says, right? No, you'd want to understand. How do they think here in this country? What is the culture like? And that's what we need to do as Christians. Because often I find that Christians are just baffled by what's happening out there right now. And I think one of the main reasons for that is Christians don't understand how important identity is to this issue. Let me give you two examples of this. So I see a lot of Christians um, getting very angry about how much the topics of gender and sexuality are being uh, taught to uh, children and students in different areas of the country, and rightfully so. But I want you to understand, especially if you are a policymaker, uh, you work at a school or school board or anything like that, I want you to understand that you're not going to be able to have winsome or even effective arguments if you think that this debate is only about what is morally right and morally wrong. See, the reason why there are so many institutions across America in the last five to ten years that are focusing now on teaching these topics to children and students It's not just because, well, that's what they feel is personally right, and they want kids to respect people of all different sexual preferences, but it's also because they feel that a child or a student's gender and sexual identity is not just an issue of morality. They feel like it's an issue of who they are. And the sooner that the child can understand who they are, then, like we talked about, then the quicker they can find ultimate happiness. This is about identity. And more and more so, sexual identity. Not just morality. Let me give you a second example of where I think, as Christians, we just sometimes miss what it's actually about, which is identity. So one of the things that we've seen in the news a lot in the last five to ten years are lawsuits against Christians, and this is going to increase over the next 10 years, we need to somewhat prepare ourselves for this. But I'm thinking of an example of like where there's a lawsuit against a Christian baker or a Christian, a florist uh, who doesn't want to bake a cake or arrange flowers for a gay wedding. And often I'll hear Christians respond to that and they say, I just don't get that at all. It makes no sense to me. I don't understand why the gay couple can't just go down the street and go to a different baker who's clearly gonna bake a cake for them. But again, we're understanding how people who are different than us, how they think. And for two men that are in a relationship, they don't see the baker as refusing them service because of their moral choices. They see the baker as objecting to their identity, as objecting to the absolute irreducible core of who they are, as objecting to their existence. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that their thinking is right, but I am saying that's how they think. And if we're gonna effectively engage with people, we need to understand how different people think. And this identity issue is also why we're probably going to see a surge in our culture of people talking about speech crime or whatever you wanna call it over the next five to 10 years, we're going to most likely, these are the questions that the persecuted church across the globe has to ask. We're going to most likely see increasing consequences in schools and in corporate environments for people who don't verbally, completely endorse this sort of thinking. Why? Why? Why would there be consequences for having different opinions on this? Well, that's happening precisely because of this. It's because we are now in a new era of identity where our very self-worth is tied to our feelings, specifically our sexual feelings. And so how do we speak in? How do you speak effectively and wisely into this new culture? Because it's how people think. You can't turn the clock back, okay? And let's not pretend like finding your identity and how rich you were was like any better, okay? (laughs) Because it wasn't. So let's talk about why, why shouldn't you find your identity within you? I wanna give you three reasons. Okay, of why it doesn't make sense for someone to look for their identity there. Number one, your feelings are always changing. And so your identity, that's the core of who you are, where you find your worth, it shouldn't be based in something as fleeting as your feelings. I heard it explained this way once. For those of you that are older than 20 years old, when you were 20, what did you think of your thoughts and feelings back when you were 15? You probably thought, why are you laughing? Okay. It's because you probably thought, man, I was dumb. Right? I can remember being 16 and my parents arguing with me and I can still see my mom on the couch and I can hear her saying, David, you just think you know everything, don't you? And I remember saying, well, I know more than you. Right? It's all very embarrassing right now, right? Or when you're 30, what do you think of how you thought it? 20, right? And we can go on. There's a reason we don't let 15-year-olds even get a tattoo because they don't know ultimately what we want. And much of life is like that. And that's been a huge point of this series. Our feelings, our thoughts, our desires constantly change. And so that actually makes them the least reliable marker of what our identity is. Okay, so that's why you shouldn't look inside. I'll give you a second reason why you can't find your identity within you and your feelings. Number two, your feelings are sinful and they are broken. Now, if you think that I'm starting to sound like a broken record on this in this series, I want you to know it's completely intentional. I think one of the reasons that we have such a misunderstanding of gender and sexuality, even in the church, It's because we just don't deeply understand this important Christian doctrine of the fall. We can't look inside of ourselves to find out who we are because our feelings, our thoughts are broken. Because Adam and Eve sinned, they fell in the garden. And so now looking inside to yourself to see who you are, that's like trying to get an accurate picture of yourself by looking at one of those curved funhouse mirrors. See, everything that you feel, it is warped by the fall, by your sinful nature. And so thus, the truth about who you are, it can't actually be seen right by just looking at your feelings, and it doesn't lead you to the right place. And I think if we just stop and think critically, which I love to do, I think this makes sense to most people, right? You, you want to know that the truth, all truth is God's truth. And so you want to know truth so you can share it with people. And I think if we just get beyond these sort of platitudes of just saying, no, I am what I feel, it doesn't actually make sense. So give me an example of this. Uh, there is a writer named A.J. Jacobs, who's kind of made a living off experimenting on his life for journalism. And one of the interesting things he did years ago was he did like a three or four week experiment where he spent a few weeks basically being radically true to all of his thoughts and feelings. Okay, so if he thought it, he said it. If he felt it, he did it. And he did this as a journalistic experiment. And so he had to be like in a meeting and he had to say to another coworker across the table, hey, I actually really want to sleep with you right now. Whoa! Okay, he he. I was over at a friend's house, and his friend's five-year-old daughter said, "Mom, I think the ladybug on my hand is napping." And he said, "It's not napping. It's dead." Okay, when he didn't feel like going to work, he didn't go to work, right? And he just lived like this for three or four weeks. And what he did is he learned the spiral, the downward spiral of following your desires. Because our desires, without God's compass, without God's power to lead and change us, they don't lead to a good place. And yet, every year that goes by, our culture is encouraging people more and more and more to fully live out all of their desires, Why? Because they're saying, well, your desires are you, and you are your desires. And to kind of push down or squash those desires is then to not be authentic. It's to suppress the very place you're not going to find meaning. Well, listen, I'm starting to wonder if maybe we're even hitting a tipping point as a culture. I mean, I could be so wrong. I mean, we could be 100 years out from this still. But one of the things that's interesting to me is I'm seeing more and more uh, intellectuals show interest in Christ, some of them even coming to Christ. And what some of them are saying is they're looking out at secular ideology, this idea that let's just all follow our desires, and they, because they're sharp people, are saying that actually, that, that's gonna lead to chaos, not, not to beauty and freedom. And so we can't follow our feelings because our feelings are broken. Let me give you a third reason of why you can't find your identity in what you feel. Number three, your feelings are influenced heavily by your culture. You know, everybody likes to say that, no, 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 my feelings, that's a reflection of the true me, but we don't realize how much of an influence our culture plays on that, especially in determining which part of our feelings are good and which part of our feelings are bad. Let me explain with an example here. I heard this years ago from uh, Timothy Keller, who's just so influenced my thinking on this subject over the last decade. And Keller says, imagine this, he said, imagine there's a man from a northern Europe, and let's say it's the year 800 A.D. And let's say this man has two main inward impulses, and he treats them very differently. Uh, firstly, like many northern European men of the time, he loves to smash and kill people. Okay, a so warrior culture. This is what they did. This is how many men found their identity. And so he would have said, yes, that feeling, that aggression to go out and kill and fight, that's me. That's me. I'm going to live that out. I'm going to express that. I love that about myself. That's me. Now, let's say the same man also feels a sexual attraction to men. He's going to say, that's not me. I don't know what that is, maybe that's a temptation from outside of me, but that is not me, I'm gonna control it, I'm gonna suppress it, it's not me. Not who I am. Okay, now imagine a second person, let's imagine a young man in urban America today. And let's say that he feels the exact same two inward impulses to smash and kill and same-sex attraction. He's gonna look at that violent aggression, he's gonna say, that's not me. Do you ever notice when celebrities really make mistakes and they have to make a a statement to the press? Look carefully. They always say the same thing. They say, that's not who I am. And so he's going to say, that's not me. I don't know what that is. That's not a part of me. I don't identify with it. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to go to anger management. That isn't me. But as for his desire of same-sex attraction, he's going to say, that's me. That's who I am. I've got to be true to that. Otherwise, I would be living a lie. Okay, do you see now how your feelings can't be your identity? Because some of the things that we claim as core to who we are would be the very things that we would deny if we were born just in a different place or in a different time. And so if our feelings are always changing, if our feelings are warped to begin with, if our feelings are so heavily influenced by the culture, we can't find our identity in what we feel. And so where should we find it? We've got to find it in something higher, in something unchangeable. You find it in Jesus Christ. Okay, but well, what does that mean? Because Christians say, you've got to find your identity in Christ. What, is it, what does that mean? Well, we look to the scriptures, the scriptures that tell us about what our identity is as a believer in Jesus, as someone who has believed that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for us. Uh, First thing we see is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes this. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So Christians, we're done with this kind of worldly identification of identity. He says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. the old has gone, the new is here. You get a new identity when you believe in Christ. He has changed you. Look what else he says about you. First Peter, chapter two. It says, "But you, the believer, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This says God chose you. You're his special possession. We get more on this thought and this identity in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two. It says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This says that God has purposefully made you. He uniquely made you to do unique things for his glory. But what's cool is it's even richer than that. It's not just that you get to be a servant for the Most High King. Look at this, 1 John 3. It says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, what's it say, not just servants, but children of God. And that is what we are. You are God's child. And you are deeply loved by Him. The Creator of the universe came to rescue you by giving his life for you on the cross. And when you put your faith in that, he brings you into his family and gives you a new identity. And Christian, those are now the deepest and most important things about you. And I want you to know, finding an identity in that is infinitely better than finding an identity in your feelings. In fact, let me me show you what I mean with this chart. So what I want to do is I want to compare... Finding identity from within. What's underneath that? This cultural thought versus what we see from the scriptures, finding our identity from above. And so our culture today tells you that it's good to find your identity within your feelings because it says your feelings are perfect. You are perfect just the way you are. You just be you because your feelings are right and they are true. And that feels, I think, really appealing to a lot of people because we deduce like, well, if I'm perfect... That means I don't have to change. And who wants to change, right? Not a lot of us. And so this is attractive to us. The culture says no matter how you choose to live, even with your gender identity or your sexual identity, no one can tell you that's wrong because you are perfect just the way you are. That sounds very appealing. But the problem is it doesn't actually work. Mentally for us emotionally, it doesn't actually work. This is a hard word But I want you to track with me even if this is hard to to bring in it doesn't work because it's not reality and It's not reality because you can't love everything about yourself You just can't Okay, this is where the old sinful nature comes in you're going to mess up You're gonna say the wrong thing You're gonna hurt people's feelings you're going to have the wrong desires. But what happens to so many Americans today is that we are so committed to this cultural ideology that I am perfect the way I am. Nobody can tell me what to do. I don't need to change. But then we're forced to sort of constantly lie to ourselves and say, no, I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. Everyone else is hateful. That person is toxic in my life because they're telling me I need to change. And what happens is plenty of people that get stuck in this ideology, they actually become very emotionally stunted. And they can't ever grow in their mental or emotional health. And they're all left to sort of resort to yelling out to the world, like, no, you can't tell me what to do. I can be my own authentic self. And yet, in the privacy of their own minds, they feel anxious, or they feel depressed, because they can't live up to even their own personal standards that they have for themselves. And see, it's, it's that dissonance, that incongruence right there between this sort of private battle that's going on, and this public persona of like, no, I'm perfect the way I am. That right there is completely overwhelming for a lot of Americans. Maybe even you. But this is where the Bible is so beautiful and it is so liberating. I say to you, hear the truth and may the truth set you free. Because the Bible says you're not perfect, but God loves you anyway. So much so that he sent Jesus to die in your place for your imperfections, for your sin. And that's a much better deeper, richer truth than our culture because it matches what we all know deep down to be true. We're not perfect. And so I don't have to pretend to be perfect because I'm not perfect. But God loves me anyway. And about my imperfections, he's changing me into a new creation. See, God loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He doesn't want to leave you stuck in the spiral of your own desires. And so when you believe in him, the Bible says you receive in the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit makes you a new creation. And as a new creation, you actually now start getting power over those desires to live differently. I mean, just see how liberating that is. I mean, I almost just physically relax just speaking the truth of how God made us. And yet still there are many people that are still attracted over to this left side of the chart. And I think one of the reasons it feels so attractive to people in our culture is because the idea of saying I'm perfect the way I am and how I feel and I don't need to change, it feels like it would be a really easy way to get acceptance. And don't miss this. Because when we are talking about identity, acceptance is ultimately what people are looking for. Okay, how do you find out who you are? How do you find out if you're worth anything? It's when you get acceptance from other people. And so I think a lot of Americans think, well, if I can just shortcut the process and I can just say, I accept myself. I don't care what everybody else thinks. I love myself. Then we can be secure in our identity and we can feel really good, right? It sounds really, really nice, but the problem, again, is it actually just doesn't work. Because ultimately, you cannot get love and acceptance through self-recognition. Right? People in our culture constantly say, I don't care what everybody else thinks. And yet, like in therapy every day, all people ever talk about is how offended they are by what everybody else thinks, right? And that's because we crave love love and respect, and acceptance. Let me show you what I mean if this isn't making sense. Okay, if someone in our culture, let's say they come out to their family as gay or as trans, and let's just say, uh, for whatever reason, um, they get rejected by their family. That individual who experiences that rejection from their family doesn't then say, well, actually, that's that's no big deal at all, That's just like water off my back because in reality, I accept myself and that's enough. No, that never happens, it never happens. Instead, what they'll do, this is what we do as humans, is they'll run to a new community, a new group of friends who will what? They will affirm them. Okay, this is why affirming is such an important word in the LGBTQ plus movement. It's because it isn't ultimately enough for someone to just accept themselves in their new gender or accept themselves in their new sexuality. What they crave or even demand, if you're going to love them, is affirmation. Why? Why? That's because in order for us to feel good about our identity, to know who we are, to find our worth, our identity, it needs to be affirmed by people outside of ourselves. It's kinda of just how we were designed, it's how we were made. And honestly, the greater the worth of the person who's affirming you, the more powerful that recognition is to our identity formation. I mean, think about this even in a simple thing. Okay, if, you, if there's a kid who plays basketball And their friend says to them, hey, you're really good at basketball, that's going to make them feel good in their identity, right? If their coach comes and says, hey, you're really good at basketball, that's going to make them feel really good, right? If LeBron James says to them, hey, you're really good at basketball, they're going to go, oh, man, this is incredible, right? Now, listen, this is, again, where the Bible is so powerful, And I think it's so liberating when it comes to identity because it says you don't have to go around making sure that everybody else affirms your identity because remember, the greater the person that is validating you, the greater the significance, the recognition to your identity. And the Bible says the greatest of all, the creator of all, says to the believer, I accept you. I forgive you. I have saved you. I am preparing a place for you. I mean, you just see how much stronger that identity is than the shaky ground of trying to find it within. And it gives us what we actually crave as humans, it's affirmation from the outside. You are accepted into God's family. And this affirmation, it's not just that it's from someone who has greater worth, it's secure. Because let me tell you, here's a problem with seeking acceptance or affirmation of your identity from everybody else around you. A, it's really hard to get affirmation from everyone, and so you're left trying to get everyone around you, your school, your friends, your family, to bend to your reality, to give you affirmation. That's exhausting. And B, it's incredibly unstable and unreliable to rely on affirmation from everybody else. Because someone may accept you one day and cast you aside the next. Many of you have experienced this very thing in life. And then what happens to your identity when they cast you aside? It's crushed, right? Because your identity was linked to that marriage or that job or that friendship group, and now it's gone. But the creator of the world says that he accepts you into his family and that even if you should wander, even if you should stray, even if you should really mess up, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You are his. And so you can have peace, my friend. You don't have to have anxiety because the creator of all has accepted you. and He will never leave you. You are his rock-solid identity. And so hear me. Your identity is not found in who you are, but whose you are. What makes you special is not your feelings. It's not your sexual desires. It's not even what you've accomplished. Because identity isn't meant to be discovered. It's not meant to be achieved. It's meant to be Received. And the Bible says this, 1 John 1 12. Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a gift. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that we can receive the greatest of all identities from you. Lord, I pray that you help us live in this truth. Lord, we also pray as our culture is lost, trying to find identity from within, that you would boldly give us the words to hold out your words of life. You have the truth, and the truth sets us free. Give us courage, give us boldness to bring more people into your family so that they too may live in this glorious identity. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen.